0: Prologue At the Earth's Core by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Mark Nelson. At the Earth's Core Prologue. In the first place, please bear in mind that I do not expect you to believe this story. Nor could you wonder had you witnessed a recent experience of mine when, in the armor of blissful and stupendous ignorance, I gaily narrated the gist of it to a fellow of the Royal Geological Society on the occasion of my last trip to London. You would surely have thought that I had been detected in no less a heinous crime than the purloining of the crown jewels from the Tower, or putting poison in the coffee of His Majesty the King. The erudite gentleman in whom I confided congealed before I was half through. It is all that saved him from exploding. And my dreams of an honorary fellowship, gold medals, and a niche in the Hall of Fame faded into the thin, cold air of his arctic atmosphere. But I believe the story, and so would you, and so would the learned fellow of the Royal Geological Society, had you and he heard it from the lips of the man who told it to me. Had you seen, as I did, the fire of truth in those gray eyes, had you felt the ring of sincerity in that quiet voice, had you realized the pathos of it all, you too would believe. You would not have needed the final ocular proof that I had, the weird, ramphorhinches-like creature which he had brought back with him from the inner world. I came upon him quite suddenly, and no less unexpectedly, upon the rim of the great Sahara desert. He was standing before a goat-skin tent amidst a clump of date-palms within a tiny oasis. Close by was an Arab douar of some eight or ten tents. I had come down from the north to hunt lion. My party consisted of a dozen children of the desert. I was the only white man. As we approached the little clump of verdure, I saw the man come from his tent and with hand-shaded eyes peer intently at us. At sight of me, he advanced rapidly to meet us. A white man!" he cried. "'May the good Lord be praised! I have been watching you for hours, hoping against hope that this time there would be a white man. Tell me the date. What year is it?' And when I told him he staggered as though he had been struck full in the face, so that he was compelled to grasp my stirrup-leather for support. "'It cannot be!' he cried after a moment. "'It cannot be!' Tell me that you are mistaken, or that you are but joking. I am telling you the truth, my friend, I replied. Why should I deceive a stranger, or attempt to, in so simple a matter as the date? For some time he stood in silence, with bowed head. Ten years, he murmured at last. Ten years, and I thought that at the most it could be scarce more than one. That night he told me a story. The story that I give you here as nearly in his own words as I can recall them. End of Prologue. Chapter 1 of At the Earth's Core by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. At the Earth's Core. Chapter 1 Toward the Eternal Fires. I was born in Connecticut about thirty years ago. My name is David Innes. My father was a wealthy mine-owner. When I was nineteen he died. All his property was to be mine when I had attained my majority, provided that I had devoted the two years intervening in close application to the great business I was to inherit. I did my best to fulfill the last wishes of my parent, not because of the inheritance, but because I loved and honored my father. For six months I toiled in the mines and in the counting-rooms, for I wished to know every minute detail of the business. Then Perry interested me in his invention. He was an old fellow who had devoted the better part of a long life to the perfection of a mechanical subterranean prospector. As relaxation he studied paleontology. I looked over his plans, listened to his arguments, inspected his working model, and then, convinced, I advanced the funds necessary to construct a full-sized, practical prospector. I shall not go into the details of its construction. It lies out there in the desert now, about two miles from here. Tomorrow you may care to ride out and see it. Roughly it is a steel cylinder a hundred feet long, and jointed so that it may turn and twist through solid rock if need be. At one end is a mighty revolving drill operated by an engine which Perry said generated more power to the cubic inch than any other engine did to the cubic foot. I remember that he used to claim that that invention alone would make us fabulously wealthy, we were going to make the whole thing public after the successful issue of our first secret trial. But Perry never returned from that trial trip, and I only after ten years. I recalled it as it were but yesterday, the night of that momentous occasion upon which we were to test the practicality of that wondrous invention. It was near midnight when we repaired to the lofty tower in which Perry had constructed his iron mole, as he was wont to call the thing. The great nose rested upon the bare earth of the floor. We passed through the doors into the outer jacket, secured them, and then, passing on into the cabin, which contained the controlling mechanism within the inner tube, switched on the electric lights. Perry looked to his generator, to the great tanks that held the life-giving chemicals with which he was to manufacture fresh air to replace that which we consumed in breathing. To his instruments for recording temperatures, speed, distance, and for examining the materials through which we were to pass he tested the steering-device, and overlooked the mighty cogs which transmitted its marvelous velocity to the giant drill at the nose of his strange craft. Our seats, into which we strapped ourselves, were so arranged upon transverse bars that we would be upright whether the craft were ploughing her way downward into the bows of the earth, or running horizontally along some great seam of coal, or rising vertically toward the surface again. At length all was ready. Perry bowed his head in prayer. For a moment we were silent, and then the old man's hand grasped the starting lever. There was a frightful roaring beneath us. The giant frame trembled and vibrated. There was a rush of sound as the loose earth passed up through the hollow space between the inner and outer jackets to be deposited in our wake. We were off. The noise was deafening. The sensation was frightful. For a full minute, neither of us could do aught but cling with the proverbial desperation of the drowning man to the handrails of our swinging seats. Then Perry glanced at the thermometer. "'Gad!' he cried, "'it cannot be possible! Quick! What does the distance meter read?' That and the speedometer were both on my side of the cabin, and as I turned to take a reading from the former I could see Perry muttering, "'Ten degrees rise! It cannot be possible!' and then I saw him tug frantically upon the steering wheel. As I finally found the tiny needle in the dim light, I translated Perry's evident excitement, and my heart sank within me. But when I spoke, I hid the fear which haunted me. "'It will be seven hundred feet, Perry,' I said, by the time you can turn her into the horizontal. "'You'd better lend me a hand then, my boy,' he replied, for I cannot budge her out of the vertical alone. God gave that our combined strength may be equal to the task, for else we are lost." I wormed my way to the old man's side with never a doubt but that the great wheel would yield on the instant to the power of my young and vigorous muscles. Nor was my belief mere vanity, for always had my physique been the envy and despair of my fellows. And for that very reason it had waxed even greater than nature had intended, since my natural pride in my great strength, had led me to care for and develop my body and my muscles by every means within my power, what with boxing, football and baseball, I had been in training since childhood. And so it was with the utmost confidence that I laid hold of the huge iron rim. But though I threw every ounce of my strength into it, my best effort was as unavailing as Perry's had been. The thing would not budge the grim, insensate, horrible thing that was holding us upon the straight road to death. At length I gave up the useless struggle, and without a word returned to my seat. There was no need for words, at least none that I could imagine, unless Perry desired to pray. And I was quite sure that he would, for he never left an opportunity neglected where he might sandwich in a prayer. He prayed when he arose in the morning, he prayed before he ate he prayed when he had finished eating, and before he went to bed at night he prayed again. In between he often found excuses to pray even when the provocation seemed far-fetched to my worldly eyes. Now that he was about to die, I felt positive that I should witness a perfect orgy of prayer, if one may allude with such a simile to so solemn an act. But to my astonishment I discovered that, with death staring him in the face, Abner Perry was transformed into a new being. From his lips there flowed, not prayer, but a clear and limpid stream of undiluted profanity, and it was all directed at that quietly stubborn piece of unyielding mechanism. I should think, Perry, I chided, that a man of your professed religiousness would rather be at his prayers than cursing in the presence of imminent death. ''Death!'' he cried, ''Death is it that opposes you?'' That is nothing by comparison with the loss the world must suffer. Why, David, within this iron cylinder we have demonstrated possibilities that science has scarce dreamed. We have harnessed a new principle, and with it animated a piece of steel with the power of ten thousand men. That two lives will be snuffed out is nothing to the world calamity that entombs in the bowels of the earth the discoveries that I have made and proved in the successful construction of the thing that is now carrying us farther and farther toward the eternal central fires." I am frank to admit that, for myself, I was much more concerned with our own immediate future than with any problematic loss which the world might be about to suffer. The world was at least ignorant of its bereavement while to me it was a real and terrible actuality. What can we do? I asked, hiding my perturbation beneath the mask of a low and level voice. We may stop here and die of asphyxiation when our atmosphere tanks are empty, replied Perry, or we may continue on with the slight hope that we may later sufficiently deflect the prospector from the vertical to carry us along the arc of a great circle which must eventually return us to the surface. If we succeed in so doing, before we reach the higher internal temperature, we may even yet survive. There would seem to me to be about one chance in several million that we shall succeed, otherwise we shall die more quickly but no more surely than as though we sat supinely waiting for the torture of a slow and horrible death." I glanced at the thermometer. It registered one hundred ten degrees. While we were talking, the mighty iron mole had bored its way over a mile into the rock of the earth's crust. Let us continue on, then, I replied. It should soon be over at this rate. You never intimated that the speed of this thing would be so high, Perry. Didn't you know it? No, he answered. I could not figure the speed exactly, for I had no instrument for measuring the mighty power of my generator. I reasoned, however, that we should make about five hundred yards an hour and we are making seven miles an hour i concluded for him as i sat with my eyes upon the distance meter how thick is the earth's crust perry i asked there are almost as many conjectures as to that as there are geologists was his answer one estimates at thirty miles, because the internal heat, increasing at the rate of about one degree to each sixty to seventy feet depth, would be sufficient to fuse the most refractory substances at that distance beneath the surface. Another finds that the phenomena of precession and nutation require that the earth, if not entirely solid, must at least have a shell not less than eight hundred to a thousand miles in thickness. So there you are. You may take your choice." And if it should prove solid?" I asked. "'It will be all the same to us in the end, David,' replied Perry. "'At the best, our fuel will suffice to carry us but three or four days, while our atmosphere cannot last to exceed three. Neither, then, is sufficient to bear us in the safety through eight thousand miles of rock to the Antipodes.' If the crust is of sufficient thickness. We shall come to a final stop between six and seven hundred miles beneath the earth's surface. But during the last hundred and fifty miles of our journey we shall be corpses. Am I correct?" I asked. Quite correct, David. Are you frightened? I do not know. It all has come so suddenly that I scarce believe that either of us realizes the real terrors of our position. I feel that I should be reduced to panic. But yet I am not. I imagine that the shock has been so great as to partially stun our sensibilities." Again I turned to the thermometer. The mercury was rising with less rapidity. It was now but one hundred forty degrees, although we had penetrated to a depth of nearly four miles. I told Perry, and he smiled. "'We have shattered one theory, at least,' was his only comment and then he returned to his self-assumed occupation of fluently cursing the steering wheel. I once heard a pirate swear, but his best efforts would have seemed like those of a tyro alongside of Perry's masterful and scientific imprecations. Once more I tried my hand at the wheel, but I might as well have essayed to swing the earth itself. At my suggestion Perry stopped the generator and as we came to rest I again threw all my strength into a supreme effort to move the thing even a hair's breadth, but the results were as barren as when we had been traveling at top speed. I shook my head sadly, and motioned to the starting lever. Perry pulled it toward him, and once again we were plunging downward toward eternity at the rate of seven miles an hour. I sat with my eyes glued to the thermometer and the distance meter. The mercury was rising very slowly now, though even at 145 degrees it was almost unbearable within the narrow confines of our metal prison. About noon, or twelve hours after our start upon this unfortunate journey, we had bored to a depth of eighty-four miles, at which point the mercury registered 153 degrees Fahrenheit. Perry was becoming more hopeful although upon what meagre food he sustained his optimism I could not conjecture. From cursing he had turned to singing. I felt that the strain had at last affected his mind. For several hours we had not spoken, except as he asked me for the readings of the instruments from time to time, and I announced them. My thoughts were filled with vain regrets. I recalled numerous acts of my past life which I should have been glad to have had a few more years to live down. There was the affair in the Latin commons at Andover, when Calhoun and I had put gunpowder in the stove, and nearly killed one of the masters. And then—but what was the use? I was about to die, and atone for all these things, and several more. Already the heat was sufficient to give me a foretaste of the hereafter. A few more degrees, and I felt that I should lose consciousness. "'What are the readings now, David?' Perry's voice broke in upon my somber reflections. Ninety miles and one hundred fifty-three degrees,' I replied. "'Good! But we've knocked that thirty-mile crust theory into a cocked hat!' he cried gleefully. "'Precious lot of good it will do us!' I growled back. "'But my boy,' he continued. Doesn't that temperature reading really mean anything to you? Why, it hasn't gone up in six miles! Think of it, son!" Yes, I'm thinking of it, I answered. But what difference will it make when our air supply is exhausted, whether the temperature is hundred and fifty-three degrees or hundred and fifty-three thousand? We'll be just as dead, and no one will know the difference anyhow. But I must admit that, for some unaccountable reason, the stationary temperature did renew my waning hope. What I hoped for I could not have explained, nor did I try. The very fact, as Perry took pains to explain, of the blasting of several very exact and learned scientific hypotheses made it apparent that we could not know what lay before us within the bowels of the earth, and so we might continue to hope for the best, at least until we were dead, when hope would no longer be essential to our happiness. It was very good and logical reasoning and so I embraced it. At one hundred miles the temperature had dropped to one hundred fifty-two and a half degrees. When I announced it Perry reached over and hugged me. From then on until noon of the second day it continued to drop, until it became as uncomfortably cold as it had been unbearably hot before. At the depth of two hundred and forty miles, our nostrils were assailed by almost overpowering ammonia fumes, and the temperature had dropped to ten below zero. We suffered nearly two hours of this intense and bitter cold, until, at about two hundred and forty-five miles from the surface of the earth, we entered a stratum of solid ice, when the mercury quickly rose to thirty-two degrees. During the next three hours we passed through ten miles of ice, eventually emerging into another series of ammonia-impregnated strata, where the mercury again fell to ten degrees below zero. Slowly it rose once more, until we were convinced that at last we were nearing the molten interior of the earth. At four hundred miles the temperature had reached one hundred fifty-three degrees. Feverishly I watched the thermometer. Slowly it rose. Perry had ceased singing and was at last praying. Our hopes had received such a death blow that the gradually increasing heat seemed to our distorted imaginations much greater than it really was. For another hour I saw that pitiless column of mercury rise and rise until at four hundred and ten miles it stood at one hundred fifty-three degrees. Now it was that we began to hang upon those readings in almost breathless anxiety. One hundred and fifty-three degrees had been the maximum temperature above the ice stratum. Would it stop at this point again, or would it continue its merciless climb? We knew that there was no hope and yet with the persistence of life itself we continued to hope against practical certainty. Already the air-tanks were at low ebb. There was barely enough of the precious gases to sustain us for another twelve hours. But would we be alive to know or care? It seemed incredible. At four hundred and twenty miles I took another reading. "'Perry!' I shouted. "'Perry, man! She's going down! She's going down!' She's one hundred and fifty-two degrees again." "'Gad!' he cried. "'What can it mean? Can the earth be cold at the center?' "'I do not know, Perry,' I answered. "'But thank God. If I am to die, it shall not be by fire. That is all that I have feared. I can face the thought of any death but that.' Down, down went the mercury, until it stood as low as it had seven miles from the surface of the earth and then, of a sudden, the realization broke upon us that death was very near. Perry was the first to discover it. I saw him fussing with the valves that regulate the air supply. At the same time I experienced difficulty in breathing. My head felt dizzy, my limbs heavy. I saw Perry crumple in his seat. He gave himself a shake and sat erect again. Then he turned toward me. "'Good-bye, David,' he said. I guess this is the end," and then he smiled and closed his eyes. Goodbye, Perry, and good luck to you,' I answered, smiling back at him. But I fought off that awful lethargy. I was very young, I did not want to die. For an hour I battled against the cruelly enveloping death that surrounded me upon all sides. At first I found that by climbing high into the framework above me, I could find more of the precious, life-giving elements. And for a while these sustained me. It must have been an hour after Perry had succumbed that I at last came to the realization that I could no longer carry on this unequal struggle against the inevitable. With my last flickering ray of consciousness I turned mechanically toward the distance meter. It stood at exactly five hundred miles from the earth's surface. And then, of a sudden, the huge thing that bore us came to a stop. The rattle of hurtling rock through the hollow jacket ceased. The wild racing of the giant drill betokened that it was running loose in air. And then another truth flashed upon me. The point of the prospector was above us. Slowly it dawned on me that, since passing through the ice strata, it had been above. We had turned in the ice and sped upward toward the earth's crust. Thank God! We were safe!" I put my nose to the intake-pipe through which samples were to have been taken during the passage of the prospector through the earth, and my fondest hopes were realized. A flood of fresh air was pouring into the iron cabin. The reaction left me in a state of collapse, and I lost consciousness. End of chapter 1 CHAPTER Two. Of at the Earth's core by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. At the Earth's core, Chapter Two, A Strange World. I was unconscious little more than an instant, for as I lunged forward from the crossbeam to which I had been clinging and fell with a crash to the floor of the cabin, the shock brought me to myself. My first concern was with Perry. I was horrified at the thought that upon the very threshold of salvation he might be dead. Tearing open his shirt I placed my ear to his breast. I could have cried with relief, his heart was beating quite regularly. At the water tank I wetted my handkerchief, slapping it smartly across his forehead and face several times. In a moment I was rewarded by the raising of his lids. For a time he lay wide-eyed and quite uncomprehending. Then his scattered wits slowly foregathered, and he sat up, sniffing the air with an expression of wonderment upon his face. "'Why, David,' he cried at last, "'it's air, as sure as I live! Why—why—what does it mean? Where in the world are we? What has happened?' "'It means that we're back at the surface all right, Perry,' I cried. But where, I don't know. I haven't opened her up yet. Been too busy reviving you. Lord, man, but you had a close squeak." "'You say we're back at the surface, David? How can that be? How long have I been unconscious?' "'Not long. We turned in the ice stratum. Don't you recall the sudden whirling of our seats? After that the drill was above you instead of below. We didn't notice it at the time, but I recall it now.' "'You mean to say that we turned back in the ice stratum, David? That is not possible. The prospector cannot turn unless its nose is deflected from the outside, by some external force or resistance. The steering-wheel within would have moved in response. The steering-wheel has not budged, David, since we started. You know that!" I did know it. But here we were, with our drill racing in pure air, and copious volumes of it pouring into the cabin. "'We couldn't have turned in the ice-stratum, Perry, I know as well as you,' I replied but the fact remains that we did, for here we are this minute at the surface of the earth again, and I am going out to see just where. Better wait till morning, David. It must be midnight now." I glanced at the chronometer. Half after twelve. We have been out seventy-two hours, so it must be midnight. Nevertheless, I am going to have a look at the blessed sky that I had given up all hope of ever seeing again. And so saying, I lifted the bars from the inner door and swung it open. There was quite a quantity of loose material in the jacket, and this I had to remove with a shovel to get at the opposite door in the outer shell. In a short time I had removed enough of the earth and rock to the floor of the cabin to expose the door beyond. Perry was directly behind me as I threw it open. The upper half was above the surface of the ground. With an expression of surprise I turned and looked at Perry. It was broad daylight without. Something seems to have gone wrong either with our calculations or the chronometer," I said. Perry shook his head. There was a strange expression in his eyes. "'Let's have a look beyond that door, David,' he cried. Together we stepped out to stand in silent contemplation of a landscape, at once weird and beautiful. Before us a low and level shore stretched down to a silent sea. As far as the eye could reach the surface of the water was dotted with countless tiny aisles, some of towering, barren granitic rock, others resplendent in gorgeous trappings of tropical vegetation, myriad-starred with a magnificent splendor of vivid blooms. Behind us rose a dark and forbidding wood of giant aberrescent ferns, intermingled with the commoner types of a primeval tropical forest. Huge creepers depended in great loops from tree to tree dense underbrush overgrew a tangled mass of fallen trunks and branches. Upon the outer verge we could see the same splendid coloring of countless blossoms that glorified the islands, but within the dense shadows all seemed dark and gloomy as the grave. And upon all the noonday sun poured its torrid rays out of a cloudless sky. Where on earth can we be? I asked, turning to Perry. For some moments the old man did not reply. He stood with bowed head, buried in deep thought. But at last he spoke. ''David,'' he said, ''I am not so sure that we are on earth.'' ''What do you mean, Perry?'' I cried. ''Do you think that we are dead and this is heaven?'' He smiled and turning, pointing to the nose of the prospector protruding from the ground at our backs. ''But for that, David, I might believe that we were indeed come to the country beyond the sticks. The prospector renders that theory untenable. It certainly could never have gone to heaven. However, I am willing to concede that we actually may be in another world from that which we have always known. If we are not on earth, there is every reason to believe that we may be in it." "'We may have quartered through the earth's crust and come out upon some tropical island of the West Indies,' I suggested. And again Perry shook his head. "'Let us wait and see, David he replied, and in the meantime suppose we do a bit of exploring up and down the coast. We may find a native who can enlighten us." As we walked along the beach Perry gazed long and earnestly across the water. Evidently he was wrestling with a mighty problem. "'David,' he said abruptly, "'do you perceive anything unusual about the horizon?' As I looked I began to appreciate the reason for the strangeness of the landscape that had haunted me from the first, with an elusive suggestion of the bizarre and unnatural. There was no horizon. As far as the eye could reach out, the sea continued and upon its bosom floated tiny islands, those in the distance reduced to mere specks. But ever beyond them was the sea, until the impression became quite real that one was looking up at the most distant point that the eyes could fathom. The distance was lost in the distance. That was all. There was no clear-cut horizontal line marking the dip of the globe below the line of vision. A great light is commencing to break on me," continued Perry, taking out his watch. I believe that I have partially solved the riddle. It is now two o'clock. When we emerged from the prospector the sun was directly above us. Where is it now? I glanced up to find the great orb still motionless in the center of the heaven. And such a sun! I had scarcely noticed it before, fully thrice the size of the sun I had known throughout my life, and apparently so near that the sight of it carried the conviction that one might almost reach up and touch it. "'My God, Perry! Where are we?' I exclaimed. "'This thing is beginning to get on my nerves!' "'I think that I may state quite positively, David he commenced, that we are—but he got no further—from behind us, in the vicinity of the prospector, there came the most thunderous, awe-inspiring roar that ever had befallen upon my ears. With one accord we turned to discover the author of that fearsome noise. Had I still retained the suspicion that we were on earth, the sight that met my eyes would quite entirely have banished it. Emerging from the forest was a colossal beast which closely resembled a bear. It was fully as large as the largest elephant, and with great forepaws armed with huge claws. Its nose or snout depended nearly a foot below its lower jaw, much after the manner of a rudimentary trunk. The giant body was covered with a coat of thick, shaggy hair. Roaring horribly it came toward us at a ponderous shuffling trot. I turned to Perry to suggest that it might be wise to seek other surroundings. The idea had evidently occurred to Perry previously, for he was already a hundred paces away, and with each second his prodigious bounds increased the distance. I had never guessed what latent speed possibilities the old gentleman possessed. I saw that he was headed toward a little point of the forest which ran out toward the sea, not far from where we had been standing, and as the mighty creature, the sight of which had galvanized him into such remarkable action, was forging steadily toward me. I set off after Perry, though at a somewhat more decorous pace. It was evident that the massive beast pursuing us was not built for speed, so all that I considered necessary was to gain the tree sufficiently ahead of it to enable me to climb to the safety of some great branch before it came up. Notwithstanding our danger, I could not help but laugh at Perry's frantic capers, as he essayed to gain the safety of the lower branches of the trees he had now reached the stems were bare for a distance of some fifteen feet, at least on those trees which Perry attempted to ascend, for the suggestion of safety carried by the larger of the forest giants had evidently attracted him to them. A dozen times he scrambled up the trunks like a huge cat, only to fall back to the ground once more, and with each failure he cast a horrified glance over his shoulder at the oncoming brute, simultaneously emitting terror-stricken shrieks that awoke the echoes of the grim forest. At length he spied a dangling creeper about the bigness of one's wrist, and when I reached the trees he was racing madly up it, hand over hand. He had almost reached the lowest branch of the tree from which the creeper depended, when the thing parted beneath his weight and he fell sprawling at my feet. The misfortune now was no longer amusing, for the beast was already too close to us for comfort. Seizing Perry by the shoulder, I dragged him to his feet, and rushing to a smaller tree, one that he could easily encircle with his arms and legs, I boosted him as far up as I could, and then left him to his fate, for a glance over my shoulder revealed the awful beast almost upon me. It was the great size of the thing alone that saved me. Its enormous bulk rendered it too slow upon its feet to cope with the agility of my young muscles, and so I was unable to dodge out of its way and run completely behind it before its slow wits could direct it in pursuit. The few seconds of grace that this gave me found me safely lodged in the branches of a tree a few paces from that in which Perry had at last found a haven. Did I say safely lodged? At the time I thought we were quite safe, and so did Perry. He was praying, raising his voice in thanksgiving at our deliverance, and had just completed a sort of peon of gratitude that the thing couldn't climb a tree when without warning it reared up beneath him on its enormous tail and hind feet and reached those fearfully armed paws quite to the branch upon which he crouched. The accompanying roar was all but drowned in Perry's scream of fright, and he came near tumbling headlong into the gaping jaws beneath him, so precipitate was his impetuous haste to vacate the dangerous limb. It was with a deep sigh of relief that I saw him gain a higher branch in safety. And then the brute did that which froze us both anew with horror. Grasping the tree's stem with his powerful paws, he dragged down with all the great weight of his huge bulk and all the irresistible force of those mighty muscles. Slowly but surely the stem began to bend toward him. Inch by inch he worked his paws upward as the tree leaned more and more from the perpendicular. Perry clung chattering in a panic of terror. Higher and higher into the bending and swaying tree he clambered. More and more rapidly was the tree-top inclining toward the ground. I saw now why the great brute was armed with such enormous paws. The use that he was putting them to was precisely that for which nature had intended them. The sloth-like creature was herbivorous, and to feed that mighty carcass entire trees must be stripped of their foliage. The reason for its attacking us might easily be accounted for on the supposition of an ugly disposition, such as that which the fierce and stupid rhinoceros of Africa possesses. But these were later reflections. At the moment, I was too frantic with apprehension on Perry's behalf to consider aught other than a means to save him from the death that loomed so close. Realizing that I could outdistance the clumsy brute in the open, I dropped from my leafy sanctuary, intent only on distracting the thing's attention from Perry long enough to enable the old man to gain the safety of a larger tree. There were many close by which not even the terrific strength of that titanic monster could bend. As I touched the ground I snatched a broken limb from the tangled mass that matted the jungle-like floor of the forest, and, leaping unnoticed behind the shaggy back, dealt the brute a terrific blow. My plan worked like magic. From the previous slowness of the beast I had been led to look for no such marvelous agility as he now displayed. Releasing his hold upon the tree, he dropped on all fours, and at the same time swung his great, wicked tail with a force that would have broken every bone in my body had it struck me, but fortunately I had turned to flee at the very instant that I felt my blow land upon the towering back. As it started in pursuit of me I made the mistake of running along the edge of the forest rather than making for the open beach. In a moment I was knee-deep in rotting vegetation, and the awful thing behind me was gaining rapidly as I floundered and fell in my efforts to extricate myself. A fallen log gave me an instant's advantage, for climbing upon it I leapt to another a few paces farther on, and in this way was able to keep clear of the mush that carpeted the surrounding ground. But the zigzag course that this necessitated was placing such a heavy handicap upon me that my pursuer was steadily gaining upon me. Suddenly from behind I heard a tumult of howls and sharp piercing barks, much the sound that a pack of wolves raises when in full cry. Involuntarily I glanced backward to discover the origin of this new and menacing note, with the result that I missed my footing and went sprawling once more upon my face in the deep muck. My mammoth enemy was so close by this time that I knew I must feel the weight of one of his terrible paws before I could rise, but to my surprise the blow did not fall upon me. The howling and snapping and barking of the new element which had been infused into the melee now seemed centered quite close behind me. And as I raised myself upon my hands and glanced around, I saw what it was that had distracted the dearth, as I afterward learned the thing is called from my trail. It was surrounded by a pack of some hundred wolf-like creatures—wild dogs, they seemed, that rushed growling and snapping in upon it from all sides, so that they sank their white fangs into the slow brute and were away again before it could reach them with its huge paws or sweeping tail. But these were not all that my startled eyes perceived. Chattering and gibbering through the lower branches of the trees came a company of manlike creatures, evidently urging on the dog-pack. They were to all appearances strikingly similar in aspect to the negro of Africa. Their skins were very black, and their features much like those of the more pronounced negroid type, except that the head receded more rapidly above the eyes, leaving little or no forehead. Their arms were rather longer, and their legs shorter in proportion to the torso than in man, and later I noticed that their great toes protruded at right angles from their feet, because of their arboreal habits, I presume. Behind them trailed long slender tails, which they used in climbing quite as much as they did either their hands or feet. I had stumbled to my feet the moment that I discovered that the wolf-dogs were holding the deerith at bay. At sight of me, several of the savage creatures left off worrying the great brute to come slinking with bared fangs toward me, and as I turned to run toward the trees again to seek safety among the lower branches, I saw a number of the man-apes leaping and chattering in the foliage of the nearest tree. Between them and the beasts behind me there was little choice, but at least there was a doubt as to the reception these grotesque parodies on humanity would accord me while there was none as to the fate which awaited me beneath the grinning fangs of my fierce pursuers. And so I raced on toward the trees intending to pass beneath that which held the man-things, and take refuge in another farther on. But the wolf-dogs were very close behind me, so close that I had despaired of escaping them, when one of the creatures in the tree above swung down head foremost, his tail looped about a great limb, and grasping me beneath my armpits swung me up in safety up among his fellows. There they fell to examining me with the utmost excitement and curiosity. They picked at my clothing, my hair, and my flesh. They turned me about to see if I had a tail, and when they discovered that I was not so equipped they fell into roars of laughter. Their teeth were very large and white and even, except for the upper canines which were a trifle longer than the others protruding just a bit when the mouth was closed. When they had examined me for a few moments, one of them discovered that my clothing was not a part of me, with the result that garment by garment they tore it from me amidst peals of the wildest laughter. Ape-like they essayed to don the apparel themselves, but their ingenuity was not sufficient to the task and so they gave it up. In the meantime I had been straining my eyes to catch a glimpse of Perry but nowhere about could I see him, although the clump of trees in which he had first taken refuge was in full view. I was much exercised by fear that something had befallen him, and though I called his name aloud several times there was no response. Tired at last of playing with my clothing, the creature threw it to the ground, and catching me, one on either side, by an arm, started off at a most terrifying pace through the tree-tops. Never have I experienced such a journey before or since. Even now I oftentimes awake from a deep sleep haunted by the horrible remembrance of that awful experience. From tree to tree the agile creatures sprang like flying squirrels, while the cold sweat stood upon my brow as I glimpsed the depths beneath, into which a single misstep on the part of either of my bearers would hurl me. As they bore me along, my mind was occupied with a thousand bewildering thoughts. What had become of Perry? Would I ever see him again? What were the intentions of these half-human things into whose hands I had fallen? Were they inhabitants of the same world into which I had been born? No, it could not be. But yet where else? I had not left that earth, of that I was sure. Still, neither could I reconcile the things which I had seen to a belief that I was still in the world of my birth. With a sigh, I gave it up. End of chapter 2 Chapter 3 Of At the Earth's Core By Edgar Rice Burroughs This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. At the Earth's Core Chapter 3 A CHANGE OF MASTERS We must have traveled several miles through the dark and dismal wood when we came suddenly upon a dense village built high among the branches of the trees. As we approached it, my escort broke into wild shouting which was immediately answered from within, and a moment later a swarm of creatures of the same strange race as those who had captured me poured out to meet us. Again I was the center of a wildly chattering horde. I was pulled this way and that, pinched, pounded and thumped, until I was black and blue, yet I do not think that their treatment was dictated by either cruelty or malice. I was a curiosity, a freak, a new plaything, and their childish minds required the added evidence of all their senses to back up the testimony of their eyes. Presently they dragged me within the village, which consisted of several hundred rude shelters of boughs and leaves supported upon the branches of the trees. Between the huts, which sometimes formed crooked streets, were dead branches and the trunks of small trees, which connected the huts upon one tree to those within adjoining trees. The whole network of huts and pathways forming an almost solid flooring a good fifty feet above the ground. I wondered why these agile creatures required connecting bridges between the trees. But later, when I saw the motley aggregation of half-savage beasts which they kept within their village, I realized the necessity for the pathways. There were a number of the same vicious wolf-dogs which we had left worrying the deareth, and many goat-like animals whose distended udders explained the reasons for their presence. My guard halted before one of the huts into which I was pushed, then two of the creatures squatted down before the entrance, to prevent my escape doubtless though where I should have escaped, too, I certainly had not the remotest conception. I had no more than entered the dark shadows of the interior than there fell upon my ears the tones of a familiar voice in prayer. "'Perry!' I cried. "'Dear old Perry! Thank the Lord you are safe!' "'David, can it be possible that you escaped?' And the old man stumbled toward me and threw his arms about me. He had seen me fall before the Deereth and then he had been seized by a number of the ape-creatures and borne through the tree-tops to their village. His captors had been as inquisitive as to his strange clothing as had mine, with the same result. As we looked at each other we could not help but laugh. "'With a tail, David,' remarked Perry, "'you would make a very handsome ape.' "'Maybe we can borrow a couple,' I rejoined. They seem to be quite the thing this season. I wonder what the creatures intend doing with us, Perry. They don't seem really savage. What do you suppose they can be? You were about to tell me where we are when that great hairy frigate bore down upon us. Have you really any idea at all?" "'Yes, David,' he replied, "'I know precisely where we are. We have made a magnificent discovery, my boy. We have proved that the earth is hollow.' We have passed entirely through its crust to the inner world. Perry, you are mad! Not at all, David. For two hundred and fifty miles, our prospector bore us through the crust beneath our outer world. At that point it reached the center of gravity of the five hundred mile thick crust. Up to that point, we had been descending. Direction is, of course, merely relative. Then, at the moment that our seats revolved, the thing that made you believe that we had turned about and were speeding upward, we passed the center of gravity, and though we did not alter the direction of our progress, yet we were in reality moving upward, toward the surface of the inner world. Does not the strange fauna and flora which we have seen convince you that you are not in the world of your birth? And the horizon—could it present the strange aspects which we both noted, unless we were indeed standing upon the inside surface of a sphere?" "'But the sun, Perry,' I urged. How in the world can the sun shine through five hundred miles of solid crust? It is not the sun of the outer world that we see here. It is another sun, an entirely different sun, that casts its internal noonday effulgence upon the face of the inner world. Look at it now, David, if you can see it from the doorway of this hut, and you will see that it is still in the exact center of the heavens. We have been here for many hours, yet it is still noon." And withal it is very simple, David. The earth was once a nebulous mass. It cooled, and as it cooled it shrank. At length a thin crust of solid matter formed upon its outer surface, a sort of shell. But within it was partially molten matter and highly expanded gases. As it continued to cool, what happened? Centrifugal force burrowed the particles of the nebulous center toward the crust as rapidly as they approached a solid state. You have seen the same principle practically applied in the modern cream separator. Presently there was only a small superheated core of gaseous matter remaining within a huge vacant interior left by the contraction of the cooling gases. The equal attraction of the solid crust from all directions maintained this luminous core in the exact center of the hollow globe. What remains of it is the sun you saw today, a relatively tiny thing at the exact center of the earth. Equally to every part of this inner world it diffuses its perpetual noonday light and torrid heat. This inner world must have cooled sufficiently to support animal life long ages after life appeared upon the outer crust, but that the same agencies were at work here is evident from the similar forms of both animal and vegetable creation which we have already seen. Take the great beast which attacked us, for example unquestionably a counterpart of the megatherium of the post-Pliocene period of the outer crust, whose fossilized skeleton has been found in South America." But the grotesque inhabitants of this forest, I urged, surely they have no counterpart in the earth's history. Who can tell? he rejoined. They may constitute the link between ape and man, all traces of which have been swallowed by the countless convulsions which have racked the outer crust or they may be merely the result of evolution along slightly different lines either is quite possible further speculation was interrupted by the appearance of several of our captors before the entrance of the hut two of them entered and dragged us forth the perilous pathways and the surrounding trees were filled with the black ape-men their females and their young there was not an ornament a weapon or a garment among the lot quite low in the scale of creation," commented Perry. Quite high enough to play the deuce with us, though, I replied. What do you suppose they intend doing with us?" We were not long in learning. As on the occasion of our trip to the village we were seized by a couple of the powerful creatures and whirled away through the tree tops, while about us and in our wake raced a chattering, jabbering, grinning horde of sleek, black ape-things. Twice my bears missed their footing, and my heart ceased beating as we plunged toward instant death among the tangled deadwood beneath. But on both occasions those lithe, powerful tails reached out and found sustaining branches. Nor did either of the creatures loosen their grasp upon me. In fact, it seemed that the incidents were of no greater moment to them than would be the stubbing of one's toe at a street-crossing in the outer world. They but laughed uproariously and sped on with me. For some time they continued through the forest. How long, I could not guess, for I was learning, what was later borne very forcibly to my mind, that time ceases to be a factor the moment means for measuring it ceased to exist. Our watches were gone, and we were living beneath a stationary sun. Already I was puzzled to compute the period of time which had elapsed since we broke through the crust of the inner world. It might be hours, or it might be days. Who in the world could tell where it was always noon? By the sun no time had elapsed, but my judgment told me that we must have been several hours in this strange world. Presently the forest terminated, and we came out upon a level plain. A short distance before us rose a few low rocky hills. Toward these our captors urged us, and after a short time led us through a narrow pass into a tiny circular valley. Here they got down to work, and we were soon convinced that if we were not to die to make a Roman holiday, we were to die for some other purpose. The attitude of our captors altered immediately as they entered the natural arena within the rocky hills. Their laughter ceased. Grim ferocity marked their bestial faces. Bared fangs menaced us. We were placed in the center of the amphitheater, the thousand creatures forming a great ring about us. Then a wolf dog was brought, hyenodon Perry called it, and turned loose with us inside the circle. The thing's body was as large as that of a full-grown mastiff, its legs were short and powerful, and its jaws broad and strong. Dark, shaggy hair covered its back and sides, while its breast and belly were quite white. As it slunk toward us, it presented a most formidable aspect with its upcurled lips bearing its mighty fangs. Perry was on his knees, praying. I stooped and picked up a small stone. At my movement the beast veered off a bit and commenced circling us. Evidently it had been a target for stones before. The ape-things were dancing up and down, urging the brute on with savage cries, until at last, seeing that I did not throw, he charged us. At Andover, and later at Yale, I had pitched on winning ball-teams. My speed and control must have been above the ordinary, for I made such a record during my senior year at college that overtures were made to me in behalf of one of the great major league teams, but in the tightest pitch that ever had confronted me in the past I had never been in such need for control as now. As I wound up for the delivery I held my nerves and muscles under absolute command, though the grinning jaws were hurtling toward me at terrific speed. And then I let go with every ounce of my weight and muscle and science in back of that throw. The stone caught the hyaenodon full upon the end of the nose, and sent him bowling over upon his back. At the same instant a chorus of shrieks and howls arose from the circle of spectators, so that for a moment I thought that the upsetting of the champion was the cause, but in this I soon saw that I was mistaken. As I looked, the ape-things broke in all directions toward the surrounding hills, and then I distinguished the real cause of their perturbation. Behind them, streaming through the pass which leads into the valley, came a swarm of hairy men, gorilla-like creatures armed with spears and hatchets, and bearing long oval shields. Like demons they set upon the ape-things, and before them the hyenodon, which had now regained its senses and its feet, fled howling with fright. Past us swept the pursued and the pursuers, nor did the hairy ones accord us more than a passing glance until the arena had been emptied of its former occupants. Then they returned to us, and one who seemed to have authority among them directed that we be brought with them. When we had passed out of the amphitheatre onto the great plain, we saw a caravan of men and women, human beings like ourselves, and for the first time hope and relief filled my heart, until I could have cried out in the exuberance of my happiness. It is true that they were a half-naked, wild-appearing aggregation, but they at least were fashioned along the same lines as ourselves. There was nothing grotesque or horrible about them as about the other creatures in this strange, weird world. But as we came closer our hearts sank once more, for we discovered that the poor wretches were chained neck to neck in a long line, and that the gorilla-men were their guards, With little ceremony Perry and I were chained at the end of the line, and without further ado the interrupted march was resumed. Up to this time the excitement had kept us both up, but now the tiresome monotony of the long march across the sun-baked plain brought on all the agonies consequent to a long-denied sleep. On and on we stumbled beneath that hateful noonday sun. If we fell we were prodded with a sharp point. Our companions in chains did not stumble. They strode along proudly erect. Occasionally they would exchange words with one another in a monosyllabic language. They were a noble appearing race, with well-formed heads and perfect physiques. The men were heavily bearded, tall and muscular. The women, smaller and more gracefully moulded, with great masses of raven hair caught into loose knots upon their heads. The features of both sexes were well proportioned. There was not a face among them that would have been called even plain if judged by earthly standards. They wore no ornaments. But this I later learned was due to the fact that their captors had stripped them of everything of value. As garmenture, the women possessed a single robe of some light-colored, spotted hide, rather similar in appearance to a leopard's skin. This they wore either supported entirely about the waist by a leathern thong, so that it hung partially below the knee on one side, or possibly looped gracefully across one shoulder. Their feet were shod with skin sandals. The men wore loincloths of the hide of some shaggy beast, long ends of which depended before and behind nearly to the ground. In some instances these ends were finished with the strong talons of the beast from which the hides had been taken. Our guards, whom I already have described as gorilla-like men, were rather lighter in build than a gorilla, but even so they were indeed mighty creatures. Their arms and legs were proportioned more in conformity with human standards, but their entire bodies were covered with shaggy brown hair, and their faces were quite as brutal as those of the few stuffed specimens of the gorilla which I had seen in the museums at home. Their only redeeming feature lay in the development of the head above and back of the ears. In this respect they were not one whit less human than we. They were clothed in a sort of tunic of light cloth which reached to the knees. Beneath this they wore only a loincloth of the same material, while their feet were shod with thick hide of some mammoth creature of this inner world. Their arms and necks were encircled by many ornaments of metal, silver predominating and on their tunics were sewn the heads of tiny reptiles in odd and rather artistic designs. They talked among themselves as they marched along on either side of us, but in a language which I perceived differed from that employed by our fellow prisoners. When they addressed the latter they used what appeared to be a third language, and which I later learned is a mongrel tongue rather analogous to the pidgin English of the Chinese coolie. How far we marched I have no conception, nor has Perry. Both of us were asleep much of the time for hours before a halt was called, then we dropped in our tracks. I say for hours, but how may one measure time where time does not exist? When our march commenced the sun stood at zenith. When we halted our shadows still pointed toward Nadir. Whether an instant or an eternity of earthly time elapsed, who may say? That march may have occupied nine years and eleven months of the ten years that I spent in the inner world, or it may have been accomplished in the fraction of a second, I cannot tell. But this I do know, that since you have told me that ten years have elapsed since I departed from this earth, I have lost all respect for time. I am commencing to doubt that such a thing exists other than in the weak, finite mind of man. End of chapter 3